Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are covering Death Comes as the End. Before we get into the meat of our program, I just wanted to highlight for anyone who hasn't already heard that we are running a Patreon account now. So we are doing bonus episodes for those who are looking for some bonus content. Our next episode is actually going to be a lively discussion of the Five Little Pigs radio adaptation. Giving Catherine a solid excuse to revisit Five Little Pigs is just the best gift that anyone could give her. So it's true. Definitely we'd like, true. We'd like to thank those who have already subscribed to our Patreon account, and we urge any who have not who may be interested to go and check it out and see what that's all about. It's at www.patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash all about Agatha. And now to return to our regularly scheduled programming, although not so regular, Death no. Comes as the End. Catherine Brobe Tell us a little bit about the publication history. So it was first published in the U.S. Uh, by Dodd Mead in October 1944, and then actually much later by Collins Crime in the U.K. in March 1945. Before we even get into our usual breakdown, this novel also affords me an opportunity to go back to Agatha Christie's autobiography. because you know, Kemper, I have to say, <laughs> sometimes I get a little hesitant when you go down that rabbit hole, but in this case... I am very much looking forward to what you are going to tell our listeners. Yeah, because it really is worth taking a few minutes to talk about the provenance of this novel, since it is so unusual. And it's one of the few novels that she actually does talk about at great length in her autobiography. There are two frustrating aspects of Christie's autobiography. The first is that she doesn't talk about her disappearance at all. That's disappointing. And the second is that she doesn't really talk that much about her writing either. She (laughs) she talks a lot about her life, but her writing gets short shrift, which is a very sort of of Christie-ish thing to do. And that's why the book is so charming, because it's charming, I think, in the same way she was. But um, this is one novel that she actually did talk about quite a bit. And, you know, we can see it in the beginning of the novel and the text itself. There's this dedication to Stephen Glanville. Dear Stephen, it was you who originally suggested to me the idea of a detective story set in ancient Egypt, and that, but not for his help, it never would have happened. First off, I think we should just say who Stephen Glanville is. Mm-hmm. And he was... He was an Egyptologist, not surprisingly, a scholar of ancient Egypt, and a good friend and colleague of Max Malowins, who, of course, was working in similar fields. Agatha Christie became good friends with him herself uh, through Max, and somewhat in Max's absence also, which is interesting. And Laura Thompson, actually, you know, more recent Christie biographer, who I often reference on this podcast, she has some interesting things to say about Agatha Christie's relationship with Stephen Glanville, especially in how close they got in Max's absence. Not that she or I am suggesting that anything untoward was happening, just that the closeness between the two of them did not hinge on Max, as I think one might think it had. 
sad if you didn't know that they had actually uh, spent so much time together while he was off doing various archaeological things. and Doing um, very Max Malouin things in the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, Stephen Glanville sort of jokingly professed to be in love with Agatha, actually. But interestingly, he was in fact carrying on an extramarital affair with another woman while he was friends with Agatha Christie, and she knew both his wife and his mistress. And the whole thing actually, not surprisingly, made her very uncomfortable as someone who had been <laughs> cheated on herself. Yeah, um, I'd say. Yeah. And he died uh, somewhat early in 1956. That's about 12 years after the publication of this book. And Agatha even wrote to his daughter saying that Stephen Glanville had the art of living more than anyone she'd ever known. And we haven't gotten to this book quite yet, but it is a Christie favorite. And I suspect it will rank very high when we do get to it. But Laura Thompson believes that the character of John Christow in The Hollow was actually based on him. So just keep that in the back of your heads for when we get to The Hollow. Very interesting. Yeah, a couple of books from now. So in Christie's autobiography, she gives a very entertaining account of how this book came about. And here's what she writes. One day, Stephen Glanville attacked me. I've got a project I've thought out for you. Oh, what's that? I want you to write a detective story about ancient Egypt. About ancient Egypt? Yes, but I couldn't. Oh, yes, you could. There's no difficulty at all. There's no reason why a detective story shouldn't be just as easy to place in ancient Egypt as in 1943 in England. I saw what he meant. People are the same in whatever century they live, or where. And it would be so interesting, he said. One ought to have a detective story written so that someone who enjoys reading detective stories and reading about those times can combine his pleasures we kind of know where things went from there. I think we should start out by acknowledging that this is the very first historical whodunit. You know, this blending of a historical novel with a detective story, Christie was the first one to do it with this very novel. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of mystery fans talk about stuff like The Daughter of Time, which obviously, uh, you know, is sort of looking into... It's a modern detective, but looking into a past historical crime. It's a fairly established subgenre at this point. We see it a lot. But not only was she the first to do it, she really went hard with it because she said it 4,000 years in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Also, in terms of the provenance of the novel, the specific source material that Stephen Glanville provided her, it was a series of letters that was written by a cop priest, one of our main characters in the story. So we'll get into it exactly what a cop priest is, but what Christie liked about it, and she she also wrote about this in her autobiography, and I appreciated this point, is that the letters weren't written by anyone who was particularly famous. This was just a well-to-do person in kind of the lower stratum of upper class, which is the social class that our characters inhabit in this novel. And she said that none of them were particularly well-known figures. And I think that is what so often makes novels set in, set in historic periods seem so phony. After all, one doesn't really know anything of what King Pepe or Queen Hatshepsut was like, and to pretend you do is a kind of arrogance. But you can place a character of your own creation in those times, and as long as you know enough of the local color and the general feeling of the period, it would be all right. So that is why she chose these letters written by this priest from the 11th dynasty, approximately 2000 BC, 
And, you know, she said that these letters painted to perfection the picture of a living family, the father fussy, opinionated, annoyed with his sons, writing to them about how they had to take care of a certain middle-aged woman who was obviously one of those poor relations who all through the ages live with families and to whom the heads of families are always kindly, whereas the children usually grow up disliking them because they are often sycophant and makers of mischief. And any reader of the novel already knows exactly who I'm talking about, and we will get to Mm -hmm. them in just a second. So she really did take the framework from life, which which is so interesting that she used this primary source material, you know, from 4,000 years ago and created real people out of them and not famous people, not anyone from history books, but people who she felt that she had the authorial power to create as she did in her other books. So just, I think <laughs> Catherine and I might may as well be upfront about this. This was not our favorite Christie <laughs> by any means. I wanted to start with this rather rambling introduction about the provenance of the novel because I think it's one of the most interesting things about it and just to really give it its due and to make sure that all of our listeners understand that we do appreciate what is interesting about this novel. I think part of the problem also is that, unfortunately, neither of us is a huge fan of historical fiction. I really wish one of us was, but we're not. I know. I think that we would have um, a little bit more of an even take um, were that the case. I mean, I obviously very much like The Daughter of Time, and I really like The Name of the Rose as another example of a historical mystery that obviously is hugely popular, right, to this day. We both Um, enjoyed Wolf hall <laughs> but I so did a lot of people <laughs> love Wolf hall. no so it's not it's not really to say that we like dislike it as a rule it's that i don't think either of us seek out historical fiction because there are a lot of people that have a lot of affection for this novel. I do understand that by virtue of its being an outlier, because I do think that's intrinsically interesting. So I get that. But I think that if I did enjoy historical fiction more, perhaps that would be more of a draw. And I think that is one of the reasons why some people do enjoy this, because it's a really cool blending that she does. It just doesn't excite me as much as as I think it does other people. So we just wanted to be clear about that from the outset. Right. And it's not to make a value judgment on it. It is just to say that it is not our personal cup of tea. I have a feeling that we are going to come down on this novel a lot harder than others would. So I think that may go at least a little ways to explaining why. But then also our job is to use the text to explain why we liked or didn't like it. So let's begin that process and talk about our victim, Catherine Brobeck. Oh boy. Well, let's just say up front that this is not exactly a puzzle mystery at all. If we list the victims, uh, it will pretty much just be telling the story for us. Um, This novel, I would say, is more of a war of attrition than anything else. Mm -hmm. So the one thing that I will mention is the catalyst victim, which is important. Her name is Nofret. And um, Imhotep, who's the head of this family, and we'll get into that, um, it's his new concubine from the north, and she is a bit of a dastardly troublemaker. And uh, she will be eventually found dead at the base of this temple in Thebes, having apparently fallen from the limestone cliffs. There's a whole lot of death to follow, but hers is the first. A lot of people also reference, and then there were none, when they talk about the body count in this novel because... It's uh, a lot. 
It's a lot. Yeah, I think I believe the body count is actually second only to and then there were none. We are not left with a lot of people. <laughs> no, it, it, it turns out it makes it easier to figure out who done it when yes. there are very few people left. Well, the probabilities get good for guessing and uh, guessing may be all that we have at that point as, <laughs> as we will discuss. So, yes. all right, <laughs> let's run down our suspects, which as it so often is in Christie, is pretty much everyone. Again, a lot of these people will be dead by the time we get to our resolution. First up, we already mentioned Imhotep, who is the head of the family and the one who has brought this new concubine into the family. And he is the aforementioned Ka priest who is performing ceremonial services for money for the dead. So when people's family members and other loved ones die, they pay Imhotep to... The funeral business is very big in ancient Egypt. It's very big in ancient Egypt. And, and, you know, it's not only interesting to set a murder mystery in ancient Egypt because it was so long ago and we know so much about it. And Christy herself was steeped in it, having traveled to the Middle East as much as she did and traveling in these archaeological circles. But ancient Egypt was a culture that was obsessed with death. So it's a good idea to set a murder mystery in ancient Egypt. It it makes sense. Lots of thematic resonance there. Yeah, although I will note that Imhotep is actually never really a suspect. Yeah, there's such a dearth of characters to truly suspect that I kind of thought of him that way. And we'll get into this, but one could argue there are no suspects in this book because (laughs) there's not much deduction to be doing in which to suspect anyone. But fair enough. Yeah. Well, and also we should just mention up front the other quasi-suspect because also she's not really ever presented as one. Renesemb is uh, Imhotep's only daughter, and she's as close to a protagonist as you get here. The book is told from her viewpoint. I mean, it's a third-person narrator, so it's not it's not like she's telling the story, but the book is squarely from Yeah, her it's it switches when it needs to. It does. We can get to later. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, for for the most Nin- part and like ninety-five percent of it, I'd say it's from Renaissance's point, point of view. It, right. And you know, she's recently lost her husband and she's moved back onto the family estate. And we're gonna just mention her up front with Amotep because frankly, neither of them is really a suspect, but they also are main characters. Our first true suspect here is Yamos, who is Imhotep's oldest son. The leader of the estate, at least when his father is not there. Right. And then we have Sobek, who is the next oldest son. He has some anger issues. Then Satipi, who is Yamos's wife, who also has some anger issues. So she's the sort of shrewish wife paired with the meek, silent older son. Right. And then we have Kate, who is Sobek's wife, who has slightly fewer anger issues. But to say that she is a nice person would not be accurate. She's quiet, but very focused on her children, almost to the point of mania, and seems to kind of be a mama sociopath. Yeah, a little bit. Next up, we have Ippy, who is Imhotep's youngest son and a teenager, thinks very highly of himself, both his looks and his intelligence. He is, in fact, very attractive. That is mentioned approximately 100 times. (laughs) 
and he's a little too big for his britches. Yeah, and then we have Issa, who's Imhotep's mother, elderly and wise to some degree and observant of the people around her, I guess. She provides a lot of color commentary. She was my favorite mm-hmm. character. But yeah, far. she's I, definitely the best character. She's the best, clearly the best character in the book, yeah. Then we have Hennet who is the family's Mrs. Danvers. I think a little too much credit for her to be Mrs. Danvers. She wishes she was Mrs. Danvers, but she came into the family as a loyal, I'm using air quotes here, companion to Renesem's mother, who is now deceased, and she never left. And this is the family relation who Christy read about, who the patriarch, you know, is constantly telling his sons to be kind to, and the rest of the family just kind of can't stand her. She's very much the companion figure that we have seen a lot of in Christy, except (laughs) the person who she was serving as companion to doesn't exist anymore because she's deceased. And now she's just lurking around. And it turns out she's also like a terrible, nasty monster. Yeah. And then we have Hori. He's like the keeper of books to Imhotep. He's like their business manager. Yeah, he's this sort of sensible, pleasant accounting man, which is also a character we've seen. I mean, we've seen all these characters in Christine yeah, before. Right. These are they're all characters norm- who are they're just normally in 1940s or 1930s right. England and not in ancient Egypt. And Hori is of a similar age to Yamos and Sobek, and they all grew up together. Right. And by the way, that's not a criticism. As Christy said in her autobiography, that was intentional. She wanted to create the exact same kind of characters that she did in her other books and transpose them 4,000 years. So that's what she did. Finally, we have Kameni, who is a scribe from the north, who is there essentially to keep tabs on the family for Imhotep. So he, too, is a bit of an outsider. He arrives with Nofrit. He is also a strapping young man. Apparently very handsome also, we hear repeatedly. Running through this book is a love triangle. Christy loves her love triangles involving who Renesem is going to choose. Kameni, the sort of young strapping outsider, or Hori, the slightly older, upstanding, safe choice who she's known since she was a little girl. All right, well, that is everyone. Let's talk about the world as it appears to be. As we mentioned, the story really does open up with Renesem moving back in, so she is our eyes here on the family as it gets introduced. So she had been married to her husband, Kay, but he abruptly died and she has come back into the family fold with her young daughter, Teti. And the estate has a bunch of land that also comes with a tomb slash temple since, again, Renesem's father Imhotep is a mortuary priest and death is obviously a huge business in ancient Egypt. There's a lot going on in this house, Catherine. Yeah, a lot of discord. And it's mostly because Imhotep has not bothered associating, quote unquote, his sons into the ownership land use rights of this temple estate. They are unsurprisingly super resentful about their lack of ultimate authority and the fact that he's not fully brought them into the fold and their bickering wives are not helping matters by fighting at all times about every household task and about the children. As for Issa and Hennet, they're just kind of there. Issa dispenses occasional bits of wisdom. Hennet needles everyone. She undermines things in the house. Everyone pretty much hates her. Off of that understanding of the dynamics of the household, we can cut to Imhotep's impending arrival 
arrival home, and he sends some catty letters criticizing his son's ability to manage the land. When he shows up on his riverboat, he comes bearing two additional people, the northern scribe Kameni and Imhotep's new concubine, a young woman named Nofret. And upon his arrival back, Imhotep immediately exacerbates those problems with his sons because it becomes clear that he really favors Ippy, the youngest, the handsome, brash the hot one. one. Yeah. And he is also pretty obviously not very eager to empower or enfranchise Sobek and Yamos. This leads to more simmering tensions between the family members. And then to make matters even worse, he just leaves, putting Kameni in place to write to him if Nofret tells him to. So if anything is amiss, according to his concubine, he says, you tell me about it and I'll put them in their place. This is a crucible here. Yes, it is. And on top of it... When Nofret shows up, she is decked out. She's wearing um, dyed linen and all of the expensive jewels you could possibly find. And, you know, sort of walks around the estate like she owns the place. Satipi and Kate, they're not very nice about this. And so everything on the estate becomes even more hostile than it already was. And this leads to, over the course of a number of scenes about it. Satipi decking Nofred just like slaps her across the face to the point where she leaves a handprint and one of her own bangle bracelets cuts Nofred um, under the eye, at which point Nofred goes to Kameni. She gets Hennet as a witness and she sends a letter to Imhotep describing what has happened. Imhotep responds by essentially disinheriting Yamos and Sobek and their wives. Nofret is sort of unfazed by all this because, surprise, this was her plan all along. Striking discord in the house, getting rid of all the heirs, getting Imhotep to marry her. And this basically causes Renaseb to call her evil to her face. Unfortunately for Nofret, she dies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not so great. <laughs> yeah, she it, it actually doesn't doesn't go super well for her. She she did what we call overplaying one's hand, uh, right. it seems. And one day, Renesemp is going for a walk. She's going up to the tomb, which is you know where she so often goes and hangs out with Hori. And Satipi is coming down, and she looks shaken, and she tells her not to go up there, but she does not heed Satipi's warnings, and she goes up, and she finds Nofret's mangled body. She obviously has fallen from the walkways that are built into the top of the tomb. So it seems that she sustained a, a fall. Her body is broken. And Satipi suggests that perhaps she saw a snake since there are cobras all over the place and Sobuk killed one earlier. But Renesemb is pretty much certain that Nofred has been murdered since she's not an idiot. And in large part, that is because the entire family has just been talking about murdering her. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, mean, we just everyone, get a whole previous scene. Everybody in the family wants to murder her. Imhotep eventually comes back and arranges her funeral. At that point, he finally praises his oldest son, Yamos, for having handled everything well. The estate is still running and he sees that, you know, his son might actually have some value to him after all. I want to point out at this point, we're more than halfway through the book. It and- takes a while. There's a lot. I mean, the stage is set for a long time and Nofred does not get murdered until very late in the book. But you know what? That reminds me of Death on the Nile. Lynette Ridgway does not die until almost about a good third, if not halfway into that book too. That's not necessarily a problem. No, unfortunately, things speed up a little bit after this. <laughs> Satipi is hanging out with Yamos on a pleasant stroll on that death walk above the tomb. Good call, guys. 
Seems like a really, really great idea. And she sees something and she is terrified. She is struck by absolute terror and she essentially plunges to her death too. She looks over her shoulder mm-hmm. at something. And we do know from the blocking of this that she and Yamos are out for this walk. Yamos is behind her. He says that he saw her look behind her shoulder at something he couldn't see. Mm-hmm. And after that, she plunges to her death. So Right. And then at this point, everyone becomes convinced that there is a vengeful ghost hanging around. And Sobek and Yamos both end up, guess what? Poisoned. <laughs> Sobek dies in the middle of the night and Yamos barely survives and they drag forward the servant boy who, and then we come down now to Issa playing this much bigger part and she essentially convinces him to tell what he has seen. His first response is to inquire about his Lord Yamos, who he is like a very loyal servant boy to. And, you know, he finds out that he's going to live and then he tells them that he saw what we can assume is the evil Nofrek ghost poisoning the wine. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the servant boy is uh, shortly found dead. Right. That wine had been poisoned. And the reason that Sobek died and he almost didn't is that Sobek had just drunk it off all at once, which was very much in keeping with his personality. And Yamos had been sipping it. We should have learned this from Amius Crail, I suppose, right? Absolutely. Don't, don't, don't quaff your drinks in one gulp, people. <laughs> you yeah, know what? They, this was 4,000 years earlier. They didn't know yet. It's true. Um, and we should just keep a running caner. So, uh, th- so thus far, we have Nofret, then Satipi, then Sobek, and now the Servant Boy, right? So we've got right. four deaths thus far. Let's just keep a running count here. So then Renison, Isa, Ori, the three of them sort of do a little like mini Scooby gang. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a Scooby gang, except very late into the book Scooby-ing. Yeah, very late Scooby-ing here. They should have Scoobied it up a little earlier and perhaps it wouldn't have been such a disaster. But um, <laughs> such a they decide they decide they're going to investigate as to who this living killer is because the sense is that Issa especially doesn't for a second believe that this is Nofret's vengeful ghost. I just would say, though, that Chrissy does a good job of portraying the supernatural belief of this family in terms of Nofret's vengeance from beyond the grave, which is believable. It's believable given the setting that they would have thought that. Also, I mean, we should point out, I suppose, given the circumstance under which um, Renaseb originally came across the body, which was Satipi running away from it, she has long been convinced that Satipi murdered Nofrat. So, of course, it makes sense in that regard that I guess there would be a vengeful ghost. They are now looking at practical things instead of vengeful ghosts. The main person that they're eyeing as a suspect ends up being Epi. It does come down to what do we always talk about? What is the motive? And the motive seems to be who is getting the property. Right, so it makes sense that he would knock out his two brothers. Absolutely. And the woman who had too much control over his father. To just move this right along, eyeing Epi as a suspect means that he too ends up dead. He's drowned. Death number five. (laughs) And then there were... Fewer people. (laughs) And um, we should also just pause for a second and mention that in the midst of this, Kameni is in love with Renaseb. Um, She has some hesitation over this because she's still in love with her dead husband. 
Um, and then there's also the Hori complication because that seems to be her only friend. But her father is advising her to marry Kameni. And then Issa seems to have an inkling of who the murderer is, which is not surprising since she's a smart lady. Rather than directly saying anything, she starts prodding the people around her, which doesn't seem too smart. So that's the one area in which her wit seemed to have left her slightly. But she too then ends up killed. So that is murder number six. <laughs> yeah, by... she's, po- she's poisoned. She's poisoned. That's actually one of the few and I think most striking passages of the book where we leave Renaissance's viewpoint because we are with Issa as she's dying and right. she wakes up and realizes, oh no, I'm dying right well, now. And also she has a taster even. Yeah. So she has a taster and she's like, and I realize that I've been poisoned because no one has stabbed me. I don't have any wounds. So I must've been poisoned. How did it happen? And then she realizes that it was through the ointments that she uh, has her servant girl smear all over her body. So it wasn't anything that she ingested. It was poison that was absorbed through the skin, which is all very medieval poisoned dress adjacent yes. to me in a, in a good way. I, I like that. I'm oh, the, that. the poisoned, the poisoned dress is like a great trope. And it's a great sequence because we do really like Issa at that point and it's horrible and she figures it out and she almost gets like a sense of peace from like, ah, oh, that was how. So that's our murder number six, right? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> do we have another one? Let's never forget Hennet, our companion who everyone loves to hate or perhaps just hates to hate. She really seems to know who the murderer is. She's been dropping hints for quite some time, but then again, she's just the kind of person who drops hints about everything everything. So perhaps people haven't been listening to her as much as they should. And she is smothered. She's almost, she's kind of like wrapped in sheets. Yes. Well, the, the what they're using for the burial of all these bodies, right? Right. Because so she's, she's mummified yeah, essentially. Correct. She's a live mummy. That's murder number seven. You know, at this point, we only have five characters who are still alive. And two of them, as we mentioned, are never truly suspects. Those would be Renesem and Imhotep. So our only suspects who are still alive are Yamos, Kate, and Kameni, and I suppose Hori as well. So four. Four to yeah. be fair. Here is, you know, another oddity to this novel we really don't have any traditional clues. And this is something that our good friend John Curran pointed out when he wrote about this novel. He said that considered purely as a classical detective story, this novel does not pass the key test. There are no clues for the reader to spot and interpret, thereby arriving at a logical solution. But as a tense and readable whodunit, it passes with flying colors. While not a first-class Christie, it is nonetheless a major achievement. I think we can eke out one or two for yeah. purposes of helping guide us toward our resolution and our reveal as to who the murderer is. So why don't you take the first one, Catherine? Oh yeah, my favorite. You just always <laughs> give me this clue. Yep. <laughs> and uh, hey, never underestimate the servants, people. We actually see it pretty clearly when we have the scene after Yamos and Sobek are poisoned and the servant boy is brought in because he talks about loyalty. He talks about the loyalty he has to Yamos. He only tells the story of the ghost after he checks on the fate of Yamos. And we might want to think about where loyalty lies and what people do to shield the people that they serve. You know, I think it's the only place where you can see a contextual clue. No, absolutely. And and it's even noted when the servant boy is murdered that, well, perhaps he was murdered for what he knew. 
you know, maybe he performed the function he was supposed to perform, but then he had to be dispatched. And that whole sequence is a tiny bit of of a punctuated moment within the story. Mm -hmm. Like he's clearly more significant than he seems to be that servant boy. And given that he is a servant, and again, we're reading a Christie novel, even one 4,000 years in the past, it's important to focus in on those moments when they occur. Right. She didn't put in a random young servant child there for no reason. So another clue I think we can glean from here is the blocking of the death of Satipi, and especially in terms of the supernatural invocations that are made as the story of how that happened plays out. And specifically, we're told by Yamos, who was walking with Satipi, that she looked behind her shoulder at nothing. Right. At seemingly nothing, which is where this notion of a ghost comes in. And, you know, they probably would have gotten there anyway, given the way that Nofer died. But that really sets off that whole theory. And in Christie, whenever we are given a supernatural explanation for anything, we should always ask ourselves, well, is there an Occam's razor deduction? Is there a simpler solution? And what would be more simple than the fact that Satipi was simply looking at the person who was behind her, i.e. her Her husband, husband. Yamos? So those are two clues which we're putting in a lot of elbow grease to get them out of (laughs) this novel because it's just not structured to pick up those clues and to use them in concert with other clues to get our way to the resolution. But they are there, so we wanted to point them out. And now I think it is time to unmask our murderer here. Rena Seb, who is, um, she's maybe the Daphne of the Scooby gang in that maybe we don't want to trust her deductions because she's convinced that the murderer is Kate. And so she warns Yamos a number of times. Then she essentially is summoned to that um, death trek on top of the tomb, which again, two people so far have plunged their death off of this. Don't go on like a walk on this terrible, terrible path. And uh, she thinks it's Hori. She thinks that it's Hori who summoned her there. Correct. Because she she sees him at the tomb all the time, too. Suffice it to say, it's not. It's Yamos. This all happens very fast. So Yamos is just going to straight up murder her because that's what he's doing. He's just murdering everybody. Got a taste for the blood. Yeah, I mean, he initially started murdering people. Uh, you know, his first murder of, of Nofret was because he wanted the land that was supposed to be his, but it just seems to have turned into a sort of psychopathic passion spree. Oh, yeah. He seems to be on a killing spree. And Hori says that he figured it out some time ago, which does lead me to believe. Why didn't you do anything then? Yeah, well, he's been scoobying it up belatedly, as we know. Yeah, he says says that it was Satipi's behavior that told him because she was such a bullying shrew that all of a sudden she stopped being one after Nofret's murder and that she was clearly afraid of something. And it was not, in fact, Nofret's ghost. It was her husband. Because she, she in fact, saw her husband throw Nofret off of the walk of death atop the tomb. You know what, though? Hori sort of makes up for his lack of action by being in the right place at the right time. And as Yamos is about to kill Renesem, Hori shoots an arrow into Yamos and Renesem is saved. And she realizes that when it comes to her whole who do I choose between Hori and Kameni, she, of course, goes with Hori. 
and seems to have every hope of living happily ever after with him. The end. Very abrupt ending, frankly. Yeah. Well, and you know what? Perhaps the biggest mystery having to do with this novel is that this is, as far as we know, the only novel whose ending Christy herself did not like because it was not the ending that she originally wrote. And the reason why was that Stephen Glanville, who was the the one who urged her to write this novel in the first place, had very strong opinions about her denouement. And this is what she writes in her autobiography. Stephen even argued with me a great deal on one point of my denouement, and I am sorry to say that I gave in to him in the end. I was always annoyed with myself for having done so. He had a kind of hypnotic influence about that sort of thing. He was so positive himself that he was right that you couldn't help having doubts yourself. Up to then, on the whole, though I have given in to people on every subject under the sun, and then she puts this in italics, I have never given in to anyone over what I write. If I think I have got a certain thing right in a book, the way it should be, I'm not easily moved from it. In this case, against my better judgment, I did give in. It was a moot point, but I still think now, when I reread the book, that I would like to rewrite the end of it, which shows that you should stick to your guns in the first place or you will be dissatisfied with yourself. But she, of course maddeningly never says what that change was and what the original ending was. And no one knows. John Curran speculates a little bit in his book about what it could possibly be. She did have some alternate plotting in her notebooks, as she so often does. So for anyone who's interested in checking that out in his Agatha Christie's notebooks uh, volumes, I would I would suggest doing that. The sort of overarching question is, was it a change as to who the murderer was? Was it a change as to who Renesemb ends up with? Both? <laughs> Here's my conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. It's not even a conspiracy theory. Here's sort of my fanfic. Uh, yeah, for, please for what, it, for what it could be. Robert Barnard, who has these pithy statements about each Christie book, which he put in his own volume about Christie's works. This is what he said about Death Comes as the End. Hercule Poirot's Christmas, transported to Egypt circa 2000 BC. Done with tact, yet the result is somehow skeletal. One realizes how much the average Christie depends on trappings, clothes, furniture, the paraphernalia of bourgeois living. The culprit in this one is revealed less by detection than by a process of elimination. I agree with everything <laughs> that he's saying right? in, in his summation. Of, it kind of is Hercule Poirot's Christmas. It is. So, But here's the thing. I actually read that before I had gotten to the end of the book. And okay. I took it too literally because I was convinced the whole time I was reading the book that Kameni was a son. And oh. because that's what happens at Hercule Poirot's yeah, Christmas, it, it, right? right? Yeah, of course. It's the secret son character who was illegitimate and no one knew he was the son all along. So I was convinced that Kameni was the son. And Renesem chooses Kameni only to realize that he's the murderer in the end. And then she goes to Hori and tries to make it happen as a consolation prize thing, but he won't have her. And that's the end of the book. Oh, well, hey, I like your fan fiction version better. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm going to have to get on the horn with uh, Gwyneth Hughes is what I'm going to have to do. Oh, yeah. uh, Have them them change the uh, ending of the BBC adaptation. As many listeners probably know, because it's something that's been announced for a while, there is a new BBC adaptation in the works uh, through this new licensing deal that the BBC has made with Christie's Works. And uh, thus far, we've seen a number of Sarah Phelps adaptations, but this one is actually going to be adapted by Gwyneth Hughes, who recently adapted Vanity Fair, actually. And, you know, as a big Vanity Fair fan myself, and we all know that Christie 
loved to reference Vanity Fair. I like that there's already one arcane connection between them. That um, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I mean, this is a perfect time to talk about the fact that this hasn't been adapted before. Our good friend Mark Aldrich actually notes in his book, Agatha Christie on screen, that there had been at least two scripts written in previous years for Death Comes as the End, but the cost of putting on a cinematic adaptation was always prohibitive. We all know what happened to Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton's Cleopatra. Your queen has conquered the people of Rome. The people. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so, sword and sandals, you know, not cheap. Not cheap. But, you know, this will be happening, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what they do with it. And I actually think, similar to the ABC murders being a really smart Poirot adaptation to do, I think this this is a really smart book to choose to adapt because it's never been done before. So that's great right off the bat, no matter what they do. And then we know that Christie herself wasn't super pleased with the ending. Should the plot change a bit? in this one. I think that there's just a lot of, you know, there are well, a lot of good I mean, reasons to do it. So. No, and I think it's worth talking about that there are only five Christie novels that haven't been adapted. And two of them are notoriously bad. Postern of Fate with the final Tommy and Tuppence, which is incomprehensible. And Passenger, Passenger to Frankfurt, Frankfurt which yeah. is also like a late thriller that's fairly incomprehensible. Well, and They right? Came to Baghdad is a thriller. And Destination Unknown is a thriller, too. Yeah. And you know, we've talked about this before. The Christie thrillers are generally, as a class, second rate compared to her puzzle mysteries. They just are. Yeah, I mean, and we can have a great deal of affection for them. I mean, every listener of this podcast knows our affection for the man in the brown suit. Right. And that's a general statement of making. We can choose specific titles to point out as superlative thrillers among Christie or particularly bad ones. And we haven't gotten to any of those other four, but I have a feeling they won't be breaking the top 10 (laughs) among the canon. No. And so, I mean, I, I don't mean to say that this couldn't be interesting because actually I think maybe an adaptation could be interesting of this. Yeah, well, and let's also not gloss over the fact that this is Christie's only novel that does not have a single European character in it. So the idea that the BBC is going to be able to do an adaptation of Agatha Christie and essentially have no white people in it is pretty cool. And that that is textually accurate, that's great. You know, I think that's going to be bringing a lot of new faces to Christie that we haven't seen before. Although I will I will note that when we're going to talk about Christie tropes, there are a lot of very bronzed, beautiful men in this book. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, the way that they're described makes them seem like they're white. <laughs> yes. And especially because, like, for example, the servant boy is described as black. Yes. And Issa, is, her servant girls are constantly described as black, but they are Egyptian. There's no getting around that. And I... Yeah, I'm just you know, afraid. I'm like, it's a little bit the fear that it's going to be Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra. <laughs> oh, well, but that's the thing. I mean, that'll be very interesting. And I think disappointing if that happens. I think that given the time that we're in right now, I have to imagine that the BBC is going to really make good use of the opportunity not to do business as usual casting with that and go the Elizabeth Taylor as an Egyptian route. It's not the 1960s anymore. So I think that's a really interesting aspect of bringing this specific 
novel to the screen. And I have to imagine that that also went into their calculus for it. And I appreciate that. So yeah, I think at, at the very minimum, it will be really interesting to see what they do with this. Yeah. And I, and yeah, I mean no. that sincerely. No, absolutely. Me too. Me too. I'm real. I'm, I'm genuinely really excited for it. And when that does come out, we will 100% be doing a Patreon episode about it because yeah, we unfortunately can't do it right now. So let's talk about the rankings for mm-hmm. this novel. <laughs> yeah. Gird yourselves, everyone. The plotting of this novel in that we don't have clues and it feels uneven in terms of, of how... Well, it's extremely repetitive and I yeah. had a hard time reading it as a result because if there are no clues to make the plot progress, there's nothing really happening. Yeah, no, there's not much happening. And I, I think, mean, you know, like a bloodbath. Don't get me wrong about that, but... Yeah, and I referenced Death on the Nile as a novel in which the first murder didn't happen until pretty late in the book. But the reason for that is that there was a lot of complex interplay going on among vibrant characters. And then once that first murder happened and and things went along from there, it didn't feel like a whiplash effect by any means. And here it feels like there's a lot of setup. And then just a hurry, you know, a sort of frenzied serial killings. And then we're told who the murderer is. And that just doesn't... And why? And we're told why. I mean, it's described by Hori at the end. Like, everything is laid out. There's no clue put in there. And it's basically him saying, oh, yeah, I saw this, like, a long time ago. I've just been trying to figure out how to, like, prove it. Well, he doesn't prove it. He waits until she's almost murdered. (laughs) Totally. And I think that also, go, and this goes even more to plot credibility than just basic mechanics. This is a Christie book in which the murderer is a psychopath, but we never really get to know that murderer to the point where that feels believable or interesting. So I didn't totally buy it. It's like his beginning motivation was Luke. Daddy issues. Uh, yeah, I guess it was sort of daddy issues, but it was also just the lucre of wanting to make sure that he inherited the estate. And then it just kind of careened off of there into bloodlust. Yeah. yeah. And I just, it, I, I, and I don't know why. It's just not satisfying. So I would give plot mechanics a three. Wow, I'm usually not even that harsh, but like I will go along with that, Kepper. Yeah, I mean we haven't we haven't gone lower than that in a while. We did for the Secret of Chimneys. We did give that a two. I think a three is in order there. And then in terms of plot credibility, it's not great either. No, it's not. I'm tempted to give it either a three or a four. Honestly, a three. I mean, I would go with a three too. Yeah, a three feels right. I mean, we gave a four to one, two, buckle my shoe for plot. Yeah, and one, two, buckle my shoe. More credible than this. Way more credible. All right, so a three for plot credibility. And then, obviously, for our characters' categories, we're just going to count one-off characters twice since we don't have a detective here and how. Right, yeah. (laughs) I do think this novel does slightly better when it comes to characters. We did both enjoy Issa, but I feel that also in this category that it's a bit of a miss because... A lot of these characters feel like Christie tropes, and it is true that it's interesting to see those tropes transferred into the deep past, but a lot of them don't come alive. And I'll actually just focus on one to make my point, because some people um, have made this comparison between Nofret and 
Arlena in Evil Under the Sun. Sure. And there are comparisons to be made there. I mean, it is interesting that you could even say, not that it's a clue, but that it's at least a means of obfuscation that she is fulfilling this femme fatale role and that there's a lot of smoke and mirrors as to her being the evil influence that is leading to all of this murder and mayhem and that there just has to be something around that, even if it's not supernatural. We mentioned she's the catalyst murder. It feels like this story has more to do with her than it ultimately does. And I think there is a similar sense of Arlena Marshall, this object of fascination. And then in the end, when the curtain is lifted, we kind of realize that she was much more pathetic than we ever realized. And we have that here. But to me, when you're comparing those two characters, Arlena Marshall, like I can see her right now. I know who she is. I remember her story. Nofret for me just did not come off the page. I was told that she had a lot of makeup and I was told what her body looked like and I was told that she was really mean, but it didn't, it just didn't come alive for me. And I felt similarly about Renison, but I, I, it, it seems like the entire book we're constantly being told by other characters how noble and intelligent and wonderful Renison is, but uh, we don't ever know. actually see it. I mean, she's kind of a dum dum. I mean, up until the very, very end of the book. She has literally no clue about anything that's going on. Yeah. This is going to sound like such a backhanded compliment, but I do mean it. I give her some credit for not trying too hard when it came to creating these characters in the ancient Egyptian setting. But that's where I think Robert Barnard was coming from when he said that one realizes how much the average Christie depends on trappings, clothes, furniture, the paraphernalia of bourgeois living. Not that these characters can exist outside of those superficial aspects because I'm not making the cardboard. Can I, can I make a counterpoint to that? Because I think that that assessment actually sounds a little bit unfair. Like Mm -hmm. the trappings are somehow the drivers of the books. And the reality of it is her two most famous detectives, Poro and Marple, they exist on the fringes of those worlds. And so the trappings are only important insofar as they are establishing a different setting, I think, necessarily to what the detectives are. So, you know, we can situate them and we can situate them outside of those trappings. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is important. Obviously, class, et cetera, is important, but it would be important to anybody investigating those crimes. And it also allows outsiders in, right? Yeah. No, I agree. I think there's a way, I think you could interpret what he's saying there in very much the wrong way and make that sort of Edmund Wilson argument. Oh, by the way, we have to mention that we've talked about Edmund Wilson's screed against murder mysteries and whodunits. The only, I believe the only, but I know that the Christie book that he had read prior to writing about his feelings as to Christie was Death Comes as the End. Yeah, that is what he well. read. So he should have read some other titles is what he is what he should have done. But yeah. I agree. I, I don't think that Christie is dependent on trappings per se, but I do think that the familiarity of her settings and what she does is sort of timeless, but maybe it's not completely timeless. <laughs> like maybe maybe she pushed the boundaries of that a little too far by going so far back. I don't know. It's I don't necessarily think that the problem is the lack of telephones and No, I, uh, no but I do water. I no but, but I do think the problem a little bit is the lack of an interlocutor. 
So it's supposed to be at some level Renaissance, but she grew up there as her family, so she's not. And so we're in even one, two buck of my shoe. You have an outsider coming into a specific scenario who can then interpret it for the reader. And in this case, we don't have anything like that, you know? Yeah, it's like she was she was using some of her tricks, but not all of them. And because she didn't use all of them <laughs> the way she normally does, it didn't completely come off. Well, it's not a, an utter failure either. No, but, but and like an like a better version in some way would have been if the point of view were Khamenei's. Right. That would have made more sense because it would have been somebody coming into a closed world mm-hmm. and then having to parse what was going on in it. We and we always talk about this the difference between first person Christie and third person Christie and so and the first person Christie often has no problem because we're getting that sort of interlocutor relationship and that perspective whoever it is it's often Hastings but it's not always Hastings and then in the third person novels she's then showing that relationship between two characters we really haven't dealt with the character all that much but once Hastings disappears some of those middle poirots sometimes can feel as if something's missing and then it's not a coincidence that we get Ariadne Oliver showing up right, in a of lot of those those later Poirot so that is you know she kind of steps in to fulfill that role and we could have had that here to third person narrator and we needed two people talking things out a lot and that's kind of the problem this book is a lot of tell and very little show there's well, a lot of sort of it's only later when you get the Issa Hori Mm-hmm. Um, sub Scooby Gang, where it's actually getting talked out, and even then where she's showing she's mm-hmm. showing people talking with dialogue, <laughs> like, right? Right, and that's what Christie's usually so good at, and she sort she seems to shy away from it in the beginning. We're told that Hori and Renesem have this communion of spirits on top of the tomb, and that they can just be together with each other forever, and we're never really shown it. You know, no. we're told that Renaissance has all of this, not just loyalty, but intelligence and intuition, but we're never really shown it. And we are shown it with some of her other characters, the Anne Bedingfields, or even like the Catherine Grays, for God's sake. Yeah, of, of course. So it, it, that just seems to be where this book falls short. And that doesn't really have anything to do with the setting. It's just that maybe in transposing it into such an ancient setting, somehow she got spooked from doing that, or she just didn't feel like it was appropriate or something. Maybe because she was so focused on evoking the setting, which she does do a good job of. I'm tempted to say a four. I guess I I could go up to a five if you feel strongly about it. Oh, no, I would rather keep it at a four. You would rather keep it at a four. Okay, let's do fours for characters. And that obviously is going to count twice. And then setting and tone is by far the best category here for setting, not tone. Correct. This is where she should get credit for being audacious and doing and something it is, different. it is bold. And you know what? In fairness, it is interesting that she did it. I don't want to begrudge that at all. And the detail is actually very nice about the house and the tomb and the mortuary practice and all that is actually like very interesting. And what they eat and the way that they live and how the their women, religion and their religion and the way yeah. the women work together and their linens and their servants and the, I mean she put in the work and it shows and and in a good way she wove in this research that she. Did 
did with Stephen Glanville's help and created a convincing world and one that I I was absolutely able to picture as I was reading it. I mean, the descriptive power of this story is significant, and that's not something that we often say about Christie. The, the rest of it is where where my issues come in, and that also is not something that we usually say. About no, Christy, so. it's, it's it's like it's flipped. It's from flipped. what it often is. Yeah. And yeah. so, again, I appreciate truly the effort that went into it. I'd give it a six. Yeah, I think that that's fine. Again, because it really is all for setting because the tone is, you know. Super uneven. The book just feels flat to me. There was a lack of liveliness that I've just come to expect. I will be totally honest. I found it very hard to read. I did too. It took me a while. It took me a while to get through this. It was the hardest Christie for me to get through since The Secret of Chimneys. And I think for Stuck in Its Time, I have zero deductions. Because you can't base it on anything. <laughs> right. Because I don't know what it was like in ancient Egypt. <laughs> I mean... And even yeah. like for, for a book that was written in 1944 about a non-European civilization, it's written with such care and I know. conscientiousness. She's, tr- she's trying very, very hard to be conscientious. And so like yeah. I think it would be very unfair to deduct anything. Okay. So... That brings us to an end of our rankings for Death Comes as the End. We have a grand total here of 3 plus 3 plus 4 plus 4 plus 6 minus 0, giving us 20 points, putting Death Comes as the End in a tie for second to last place. Right now, Death Comes as the End is tied with the Seven Dials mystery. And then we have the big four in the Secret of Chimneys tied for last at 16. So would you put Death Comes as the End above or below the Seven Dials mystery? Below. I think I would too. And you know what? There are a lot of big fans of of the Seven Dials mystery who have reached out to us. So I hope they appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So yeah, comes as the end, ladies and gentlemen, in third to last place, or really second to last place, since our last place is occupied by two novels, we have decided to leave that as a tie since I am firm in The Secret of Chimneys being dead last and Catherine is equally firm in The Big Four being dead last yeah so i'm never super happy when we don't love a christie novel because we love almost all of them and this is one of the few that we didn't but i have to say i actually now that we're at the end of this conversation i feel like i'm coming away from it with a greater appreciation than i thought i would after Mm. i had finished the text because here's the thing despite where we put it in the rankings i really do respect the effort of it and that's different from liking it or thinking it's good or thinking it makes sense but i appreciate the effort of it i do too Well, that is an end to Death Comes as the End. Join us next time for a Parker Pine short story, The House at Shiraz. And guess what? Spoiler alert, guys. Maybe I am not going to be negative about a Parker Pine story. Whoa, Catherine may have actually liked this one. (laughs) (laughs) and then our next novel coming up in a few weeks is sparkling cyanide colonel race is making a reappearance oh exciting and again please uh, go on over to our patreon page if you're interested and want to hear about the bbc radio adaptation of five little pigs we will be putting that up uh, at the beginning of the month of june 
And we would love to hear from you as we always do, especially if you have strong thoughts about Death Comes as the End. Email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And we appreciate the ratings and reviews that have come in. Please don't stop. Keep on rating and reviewing us because it is helping other people find the podcast. And we will uh, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.